Well, I am very excited for what is in front of us as we anticipate a brand new sermon series that we're going to get into here. And as we do so, welcome to all of you who are live and in person. Welcome to those of you who are live and in person in some of our other venues, maybe our classic venue, or maybe you're on our Moon Campus today, or you might be checking this out online somewhere nearby, or maybe across the, the country or around the world, wherever you're tuning in. We're glad that you are. And again, I am very excited about where we are and where we're going with this. Today, we're going to be thinking about being in the right place at the right time. And I'm sure that you've had circumstances in your life where you thought, I was in the right place at the right time. Maybe because it, it allowed you to win a prize because you were there at the right time. Or maybe to meet a celebrity because you just happened to be there at the right place at the, the right time. There are all kinds of those different sorts of things that come up. There were a bunch of people who, were, who thought they were in the right place at the right time on a California highway just a couple of weeks ago. They were driving down the road. Some of you may have seen this in the news. They were driving down the road, and they were noticing there's all kinds of paper along the highway, along the freeway. But it, they, it wasn't just paper. It was cash. There was an armored truck that had, had the back door flew open, and bags of cash fell out on the pavement and broke open. And so there's thousands of bills that are floating around on the highway, and it stopped all of the lanes of traffic while people got out of their cars and they ran around and they were picking up all of these different 20s and stuffing their pockets full with them. They thought, we're at the right place at the right time. And uh, they were filling up their pockets and everything seemed to be going along pretty well until the cops showed up and started arresting them. Because it turns out to take money from an armored truck is illegal. Who knew, right? And so it, it didn't go so well. Most of the people actually had driven off with the money before the cops ever showed up. But there were a couple of people who were there and still got arrested. Why? Because in their haste to jump out and grab all the cash, they locked themselves out of their cars. And so they're just standing there when the cops show up and they got arrested. Well, these people thought they were, but weren't so much there, you know, in the right place at the right time. Even the ones who drove off, because there's a viral video on Instagram that shows lots of faces and lots of license plates. And so people are still getting arrested coming off of that experience. They weren't all in the right place at the right time after all. But today we're going to take a look at some other people who very much were. Very much were. We meet them in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is one of the one of the best-known Christmas or portions of the Christmas story to all of us. And you know it, you're familiar with it. Even if you've never opened the Bible to Luke chapter 2, you know this passage. You've heard it. If you've listened to the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you've heard Linus repeat much of this or recite much of this for us. So I'd invite you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2 because it's where we're going to be in a variety of different places throughout this passage. And and some of it will be very familiar to you, and others, other parts of it aren't going to be quite so familiar. And that's what all of what we're talking about in this season is about. There are many parts of the Christmas story that are indeed very well known. And the reason they're so well known is because we come back to them year after year after year. We talk about the wonder, and we talk about the beauty, and we talk about the humility of Jesus' birth. And that's awesome, and it's right that we would do that. And we're going to continue to do that. But the truth is, there's more to the story 
See, oftentimes when it comes to the Christmas story, it sort of feels, at least to me, maybe not you, but it sort of feels to me like we come into it and, and, and we see the manger and it sort of celebrates, uh, you know, centers around the manger and there's, there's Jesus, there's the cradle, you can see that, and, and his mother and father are kneeling there by the, by the cradle and, and in come the shepherds and they're standing there and the wise men on their camels, they're there and, and the angels floating kind of overhead, the angels there, maybe even we have the multitude of angels and there might be a couple of donkeys kind of off on the side. And it's like every year we just kind of come to that same scene and we snap the photo and we're done and everybody just goes home. It's like it happens that way just year after year. And we just kind of bring, we parade them all in and we have the same experience that we had last year and then we kind of let them all go home. And that's the way that it goes, season after season. And we kind of leave it there. And when we do, we actually miss out on major parts, major parts of Jesus' birth and understanding aspects of what happened in the birthplace and behind the scenes and perhaps beyond Bethlehem just a little bit. Well, in this season, we're going to change that. We're certainly going to consider some of those things that are so familiar to us, the parts of the story that we absolutely love, but we're not going to leave it there because there's more to the story. And so this season, what we are celebrating, what we are thinking about, our sermon series is actually Christmas, the rest of the story. Christmas, the rest of the story. What is happening behind the scenes and, and beyond Bethlehem? What happens when the shepherds leave the manger and go back to their sheep and when the angelic chorus dies out and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are now just left alone? They're just there. Now what? Now what happens? See, usually we've already taken the picture. We've moved on. That's as far as our minds contemplate. But then what? Well, that's the rest of the story. But before we get into the rest of the story, I think we need to think a little bit about the story, kind of as a setup, as you will, for the rest of the story. So let's do that. This Luke 2 account begins with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that a census should be taken. You could probably recite this in your own mind, even as I mention it, right? You could, you could just say it for us so that oh, everybody has to go back to their hometown. And that's what has Mary and Joseph on their way, back or on their way to Bethlehem. And they basically just get started on the journey, and the narr narrative already tells us this. They say, while they were there, this is Luke 2, 6 and 7, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, Luke is very careful to tell us here that this isn't just any old baby that has come along. He's telling us that this is a particular baby that has come as the fulfillment of prophecy, a prophecy that was given 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Here's what he wrote long before it actually happens. He wrote this in Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Not just any baby. This is giving birth to a son. This idea that it's going to be a son is very, very important. This is like the original gender reveal. And he just wants to be sure that we understand the significance of what is happening here. There are no coincidences going on. Long before Jesus came into our world, we were told he's coming. 
Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Jesus is actually born into the world, and there are a number of other prophecies that you can look at and that you can read in the Scriptures that tell us about the fact that Jesus is coming, tells us about the virgin birth, it tells us about Bethlehem, that that's where it's going to happen, tells us what he's coming to do. It goes on and on and on, all sorts of different ones. Now, I hope that you have been entering in with our Pathway Christmas devotional. I hope that you've picked that up. I hope that you've been looking at that and already getting into it. And uh, if you haven't already, it's not too late. You can jump in. There are some of the booklets available at the Information Center here on the Chippewa campus. You can grab one there. They're available on the Moon campus. Or you can also just do this online. It's available on our website. You can just link to it right on the homepage. Or if you have our app, you can actually be notified every day. It'll just come right to you, so you're not going to miss a thing. Well, the reason that I bring that up even now is, one, so that you would get it so you can jump in, because we're just right at the beginning of the process. But the other is because this first week that we are in right now deals with prophecy. It deals with the different circumstances, the different places we can read of in the Scriptures where it says, this is going to happen. This is what is coming. This is what Jesus is going to do. This is who Jesus is going to be. So very important that we would be digging into these things. And this is just one of them, that this son is going to be, going to be born. So pick those up if you haven't already, or get online and, and follow along with us, something we can do together as a congregation. Now, once the birth of Jesus is announced by Luke, an angel appears to some shepherds to give them the news. A multitude of angels show up then to give praise to God, and then the, the shepherds say, okay, great, there, this Jesus is over there in Bethlehem, so let's go see this thing that the angels have talked about. So the shepherds march on over into Bethlehem to see this thing, and they go and they find Jesus, and they walk up, and they see Jesus and his mother and his father there, and they're like, hey, <laughs> sup, you know, it, it's, we don't know what they said. Did they, what did they say? Scriptures don't tell us. We don't know what they said. We don't know if they said anything. In fact, we don't even know if they walked up into the scene. We picture them there. We've always been told that. See, well, that's one of the problems with things that are so familiar to us is that we sort of insert all of the things the way we picture it in our minds, and sometimes it doesn't have any connection to what the text actually says. They might have just gone and seen the fact that, yes, this happened, and made their way back. Remember, these are shepherds. In the first century, there's this class system, and there wouldn't have been, you know, this not, would, would not have been a scenario that they would have naturally walked into. They would have avoided this scenario of a, of a woman who's just given birth to a baby. This isn't the kind of place that they normally would go, and it's possible that they don't. Now, ultimately, we don't know. We don't know. It's possible that they walked on in and all those pictures that you see, all of those Christmas cards that you've seen with them there, it's possible that they're there. It's possible that they talk. We're not told that. All we're told is that they show up and they see this thing that has happened as they were told and they go and tell everybody else about it. That's what we know for sure according to what we're told in the Scriptures. Then what do they do? They go back home. They go back home. That's the story that we know that we should celebrate for sure. But now that they're gone, what's going on? Jesus, Mary, Joseph, everybody's gone. Now what? Well, that's the rest of the story. So let's go ahead and talk about that for a moment. 
Let's think about the rest of the story, some things that come that oftentimes we just sort of pass by or, or aren't included in what our contemplations are about the season. Now, the rest of the story here has what I'm going to call three different acts, as in a play. And as the first act opens, Jesus has been on earth now just a few days. I'm guessing, surmising, not told, surmising that in those few days, Joseph has probably found a little bit better place for them to stay. A little bit better than the manger where Jesus is born. It's not quite so urgent now. He can find a place where they can, can have a little bit better circumstance. They still would have been in Bethlehem. Mary's probably not even able to travel at this point. Plus, they have some responsibilities as the parents of a firstborn son in Israel. Some very specific things that they need to be about. And so that's what they do. And as they do those things, what we see is that it gives Jesus a predictable start. This is important, important part of the rest of the story, that Jesus is given this predictable start. If this is the first act of the rest of the story, the act has three scenes, okay? Three different scenes. And we're told about the first of those in Acts chapter 2 as we scroll down a ways now beyond the, the angel and the shepherds and what have you. Now we're down into verse 21. If you take a look at verse 21, here's what it says. Verse 21, Acts 2 says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. All right, the first scene is the circumcision. That's what we're told about here first. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he was going to be the father of a great nation, that the Israelite nation was going to be many, more than you could possibly count, more than the stars in the sky, he said to Abraham. And to seal this covenant, the Israelites were given a responsibility to indicate the fact that they were all in on this covenant, that the children of Israel, that all the people of Israel, the men, would all be circumcised, and that it was to happen on the eighth day. This is written into the law, and they were very determined to keep the law in this regard. It was very, very important to them. So important, in fact, that if the eighth day for that child, that firstborn son that was born, or that son that was born, if it happened to be on a Sabbath when they weren't allowed to do any work, they would still carry out the circumcision. It was that important. It overshadowed even the Sabbath law for them because they wanted to be sure that they were faithful to keep that which they were called to do. Very, very important. The eighth day, it had to happen then in fulfillment of the law. Now, the eighth day, we're also told, is the, the time that is appointed for the naming of the child. That's not how we do it. We name the child typically in the hospital. They're born. You've probably been already working your way through all of the baby name books, and so you know what you're going to name the child, and you're there in the hospital, and it happens. Boom, you give them the name. All right? That, that's fine for us to do it that way, although it seems to me that there might actually be some wisdom in waiting until the eighth day. And the reason is because of some of the names that people are giving their kids these days. Right? Maybe you've seen some of this. Just over the course of the last couple of years, some of the names that have been given to kids, one of them was named Nutella. That's sweet. Um, another, another one was named Velveeta, which seems kind of cheesy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Another one was given the name Felony, spelled with a P-H, 
because that makes it classy to name your child felony with a PH, right? So it seems to me, maybe we should wait eight days so that parents would have the opportunity to say, should we really name our child Tigger? As someone did just a couple of years ago, right? Seems wrong. Now, for Mary and Joseph, they don't have this conundrum to go through. They already know what they're going to name the child. Why? Because they've had appearances. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. That's right. Joseph has a similar encounter with a different angel at a different time when he's told this in Luke chapter, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 1. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. She's told, name him Jesus. He's told, name him Jesus. And so they get it right. They name him Jesus, but not when they're all there in the manger. Nobody was calling him Jesus then. It wasn't until he's given the name when? At the eighth day. Very precise, very important. It's part of the rest of the story, how it unfolded. So that's the first scene, and uh, it takes place on the eighth day, as we've just pointed out. The second is called the consecration or the redemption, the redemption of the firstborn. The redemption of the firstborn. We get a glimpse of this in verse 22 and following. If you look at it, it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. The firstborn male in every Jewish household was considered to be very, very, very special. If you've read any of the Old Testament, if you've heard sermons about that, it kind of keeps coming up that the firstborn, there was a certain special condition for them to be the firstborn. And they thought so much of that, they believed that 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 firstborn was actually one that belonged to God. And so what they did is that they would go to the temple after the child had been, you know, a month after the child had been born, so still in very early days, but about a month has gone by, they go in and they give an offering to essentially buy back that child, to redeem that child back into their own family. And that's exactly what they're doing. That's why they're in the temple, and so that they would do that. The first one takes place at eight days. They probably didn't go to Jerusalem for that. They probably just did that right there locally in Bethlehem. Now they're in Jerusalem. About a month has passed, probably just a little more, as we'll see here in a moment, to carry out this step, to redeem the child. You can read all about it in, Acts, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 13. It tells you about that. It tells you about some of the background, about why they did it. Um, but you can read that for extra credit later on. It's an important part of Jesus' first days. Then the final scene in this opening act is called the purification after childbirth. Purification after childbirth. We already saw some of this in verse 22. It goes on verse 24. If you look at it, it adds this, that they're in Jerusalem now. And this is probably all one trip. All right? This, these, two, these last two things, the purification after childbirth and the redemption of the firstborn. Here's what it says. It says, They're there to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. After the birth of a son, the mother was considered to be ceremonially unclean for the next 40 days. She wasn't allowed to go into the temple. 
She wasn't allowed to engage and interact with people. She was considered to be unclean during that period of time. But after 40 days, she would go into the temple. She would take a sacrifice along with her so that she might have that sacrifice offered on her behalf and so she could be then declared ceremonially clean. It's part of the law. You can read about it back in Leviticus chapter 12. In Leviticus 12. Now, typically, what was brought for that offering was a lamb and a dove or a pigeon. Unless you were too poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, in which case you would just bring two birds. Two doves, two pigeons, one of each, whatever, was fine. It was acceptable. That's what Jesus, or excuse me, that's what Joseph and Mary bring. Why? Because they're poor. They're very poor, in fact. So does that mean that the offering that they're giving in the temple is, is less than someone who brings um, a lamb? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Why? Because they are bringing all that they have. They're still making a full sacrifice of what they have and what they possibly can bring. They weren't holding back at all. We know that. Joseph and Mary are already giving fully of themselves just to be in this position in the first place. Similarly, it doesn't matter how successful or powerful or wealthy you are from, from the world's point of view. God looks on the heart. And God is desiring that you would respond in a similar spirit, in a similar mindset to what Joseph and Mary do here, in a willingness to give of themselves. You might not have as much to bring. You might not have a lamb, as it were, to bring, but to bring all of who you are and to offer the sacrifice that is similar to the one who's able to bring the lamb is really what he is calling us to here, to be fully engaged. Whatever that looks like for you is what he's asking, and through that he can do great things in and through you. So those are the three scenes that are a critical part of the rest of the story because they're telling us what's going on immediately after Jesus is born. All this has happened, it's been 40 days since Jesus was born. We don't think about those days very often, but that's happened. But it's also important, an important part of the rest of the story for another reason, and that's kind of where we got this started, because it's, for him, a predictable start. What's happened for Jesus in these first 40 days is the exact same thing that would happen for any Jewish boy that was born in Israel. Every one of them, same thing happened. It was prescribed in the law, and that's the same thing that's happening for Jesus. There are no corners that are cut. Nobody's saying, yeah, but this is Jesus, so we don't have to do these things. Everything exactly the same. Remember, why did Jesus come into our world, or how did he come into our world? Fully God, fully man. So everything that would have happened, all of the, of the circumstances, all of the customs that would take place for any other Jewish male happened for Jesus. Why? He's coming as fully man, fully entering in. And that's important because if Jesus isn't fully man, then he's not going to be an appropriate representative for mankind as he goes to the cross, as he dies on our behalf. If he's not fully one of us, then his, his death wouldn't have been substitutionary for us who are fully human ourselves. So a very, very important part of the story that we're coming to understand 40 days after Jesus is born, as he has come to be a representative for us, and it's being demonstrated to us as he has this very predictable start because he's fully one of us. He's fully entering in. 
Important that we would understand that piece of the story. Then, the next part of the rest of the story picks up immediately after Jesus is presented there in the temple. So here as we go on, we see a divine encounter. It's the second thing. A divine encounter. With Joseph and Mary and Jesus still now in the temple there in Jerusalem. Story continues, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What's it mean to be waiting for the consolation of Israel? Well, it just means that he's waiting for the Messiah. He believes the Old Testament prophecies, that they're going to happen, that a Messiah is coming, and he's watching for him, the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the one who can come and bring comfort to the people. He's waiting for one who can come bring rest for Israel and, and stop all of the, the difficulty and the pain and the struggle that they have been experiencing for years and years and years, all the way, they think back, all the way to Egypt and, and the problems that happened then. And Who's the one who's going to come and deliver us? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's what he's doing. Verse 26, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is quite a promise. Imagine getting the promise from God that you would not die until certain things happen. I would love to get a promise from God that that I'm not going to die until I see the salvation of certain family members or something of that nature. I'd love to get a promise from God that I wouldn't die until I saw the Pirates in the World Series. I mean, I could live forever waiting for that to happen. Or to get a promise from God that that I wouldn't die until I saw His second coming. That would be awesome. Well, here Simeon is given a promise. He's not going to die until he sees Jesus' first coming. It goes on, verse 27 says, Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. What's happening? God is orchestrating a divine encounter between Simeon and the baby Jesus. Between Simeon and God. That's super cool for Simeon, but we've got to ask why. Why? Why this guy? Some people think since he was there in the temple that he's a priest. He might have been a priest. He might not have been a priest. We actually don't know for sure. So why just, just this dude who's hanging out in the temple, what's the big deal about him having this divine encounter with God, with Jesus? Good question. Well, there's a lot we could say here, but a couple of details stand out that are a part of the rest of the story that we don't often connect to the Christmas story. Notice here the emphasis that's placed on the work of God's Holy Spirit. In verse 25, if you notice this as we read these verses, verse 25, we see that it's the Holy Spirit is on Simeon. In verse 26, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who tells him that he's going to see God. Verse 27, we see that he's orchestrating this divine encounter, so he's in the temple at the right moment when Jesus is there with his parents. That's all pretty cool. Moves him to be in the right place at the right time for his divine encounter. Now, clearly, the Spirit of God is active in Simeon's life, which is something that is very interesting to me because Jesus promised the arrival of the Spirit. He promised that this day of Pentecost was going to happen when the Spirit of God would come down and rest on all believers. When's that promised? When does Jesus talk about it? At his ascension. After his ministry, 
after the cross, after the resurrection, a long way down the road from where we are right here. That's where we see the Holy Spirit, where we, when we think about the Holy Spirit through the day of Pentecost, which just means His coming down onto all believers. That's what Jesus was promising. Yet here He is long before that. The Holy Spirit being active. The Holy Spirit carrying out a ministry in the life of this man. Part of the rest of the story for us is to see the action of the Spirit of God. We don't often connect the Spirit of God to the, to the circumstances of the Christmas story. We don't put Him there, but we should. We should. This is one of the places that demonstrates to us that the Spirit of God is very active long before Pentecost. Now, there are some other places you can go in the Scriptures where you can see that very same thing happening. But the Christmas story is telling us something if we're willing to look at the rest of the story that happens 40 days later to Jesus as a baby. If we just let him still be a baby for a moment, that's happening. It tells us so much about God's work in the world. And if that's what's happening before Pentecost, what should the demonstration or what should be the expression and the experience of the church be with people who are filled with God's Holy Spirit. If we would live out the infilling that is ours, what difference would that make in the world in which we live? It would be dynamic. It would be off the charts because look at what it does for Simeon. One guy. We need to lean into the fact that the Spirit of God is a part of the Christmas story. That God speaks. That God moves through His Spirit in our lives, in this season. This isn't just about a baby. This is God, about God transforming a life. And that's what we see happens for, for Simeon. It's life-changing. Verse 28, if you look at it, it says, Simeon took him, took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. The only thing Simeon had on his bucket list, one thing, it wasn't skydiving. He wasn't swimming with dolphins. He wants to see Jesus. And he does, and he says, my life is full. My life is complete. I can die now. It says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Some people think he's saying, because I'm now saved. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about his salvation. He says, I've seen Jesus, so now I've seen your salvation. I've seen your plan, which transforms everything, which gives hope for the world, because I've seen your method of salvation. It's in this child. Beautiful. Verse 32 says, he's a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Everybody assumed that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come for Israel. Nobody thought he was coming for the Gentiles. And what's the rest of the story here? We're told that right from the moment that he comes into our world, that's why he's here. Peter and Paul, they're going to be battling on this wall. They're going to be working to help people understand this 40, 50, 60 years down the road. We don't need to wait till then. We don't need to wait till Acts 10 and 11 to learn about this. We don't need to wait for Galatians to get it explained to us so that we can understand. 
The rest of the Christmas story tells us that Jesus is here for the Gentiles, which means that he's here for everybody, which means that he's here for you, and he's here for me. The Christmas story should compel us to be on our knees before God. It tells us that we have the opportunity to enter in, to walk in fellowship and oneness with the Spirit of God who's alive in our world, that it should transform us, that it should help us to recognize that there's a, there's a work that He is doing in us and wants to do through us just because of the Christmas story, just because Jesus arrives. It's not just a time to celebrate the beauty of a little baby in a manger. Isn't that lovely? No, it's a call to action. It's a call to involvement with the Spirit of God, to contemplate for ourselves how is the Spirit of God working in us? How are we being transformed in the moment? Then with that, the camera sort of pans from Simeon there in the temple over to Mary and Joseph. We get to see what's going on for them. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said, at what was said about him. What's it mean for them to be marveling? Well, they're trying to get their heads around everything that's being spoken. They're trying to figure all of this out. You see, it seems to suggest to us that Simeon actually has a deeper understanding of who Jesus is going to be, what he's here to do, how he's going to carry that out than what the child's own parents have at this point. And so he goes on, and he tells them more. There's some prophecy he gives to them. Verse 34, if you look at it, it says, Then Simeon blessed them, the parents, and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The truth is that Jesus is a great dividing line. There is no middle ground. You're for him. You're against him. He'll cause the rising and falling of many because some are for him and some are against him. He says you can tell by the thoughts of one's heart, by the thoughts of your own heart, how you're for him or how you're against him. The beauty of this portion of the rest of the story is that we already see in Jesus' first 40 days what he's come to do and what he's come to accomplish. Unfortunately, Part of the story is a difficult one to receive as well. In verse 35, Simeon addresses Mary to say, and a source will pierce your own soul too. And indeed, we know that Mary's own soul, her own spirit is going to be pierced as she experiences her son going to the cross. Though it's unlikely she fully grasps and fully understands exactly what that means at this point. In fact, you can fast forward to when Jesus is there in the temple at the age of 12. He's still sort of telling her, didn't you know that I needed to be here? Didn't you know what I needed to be doing? Suggesting that Mary maybe still doesn't fully grasp and understand all that is ahead, but it does look like Simeon has a great understanding of what's coming 
There's no doubt that Simeon was in the right place at the right time, but it certainly wasn't coincidental. It wasn't accidental that it happened. This is providential that this is happening. It was a divine encounter that was orchestrated through the Spirit, and it fulfilled Simeon's life completely. And it also allowed him to fulfill his purpose. You can just imagine Mary and Joseph. Just think about it. Shepherds are gone. It's just in those first few weeks. They haven't gone to the temple yet. They're holding their baby, knowing that there's something really unusual here. They have some grasp, but not fully, wondering what is life going to be like? Simeon shows up and is the one who provides for them, like nobody else does, some words that tell them a little something about what's coming. He fills in some pieces for them that they wouldn't have understood, that nobody else is telling them, that perhaps nobody else has the same sort of understanding about. Simeon is used to speak into the lives of Mary and Joseph about who they held in their arms and what was coming for him. The importance of of that part of the story to the rest of the story can't possibly be overstated. Then quickly, there's one more final piece to the rest of the story. We see it with a woman and her compelling faith. We see a compelling faith. We meet her beginning in verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. If you look at the footnote that's probably there in your Bible, it says that that could be interpreted as she was a widow for 84 years. And if that's the case, then you can, we know that she lived with her husband for seven years, so that gets us to 91. And then let's just say that she was 14 years old when she was married. That gets you to like uh, Pastor John's age. Yeah. Going on, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is an amazing woman with a compelling faith. She's a constant worshiper. She fasts. She prays. She praises God. She anticipates His coming. She speaks of His arrival and the redemption of Israel and that all that is going to be accomplished through Him. It's a beautiful thing. This is, this is one grandma who hasn't hung up her prayer shawl She hasn't put away her work boots. She's still at it. See, I'm afraid that there's far too much of an idea and an understanding in our world that when we retire from work, it's it's time to sort of dial back when it comes to serving the Lord. That so much should not be the case. For most of us, that's the point in time that we're going to have more opportunity than ever before to jump in to serve. I understand it takes a lot of time to see the grandkids and go visit the grandkids and babysit the grandkids, and I get that. I understand it's busy, but it's also an opportunity to jump into serving. And I would challenge you that if you're there or when you get there, that you would take on that perspective 
I got to tell you, my dad is my hero in this regard. He's a guy, he retired a long, long time ago, but he loves engaging in the church, in his church where he lives. And so he does. He, he directs the choir. He plays the piano for some of the services. He teaches a Bible study. He teaches a Sunday school class. He serves on the personnel committee. He just ended his term as the chairman of the elder board, and he's a greeter. Oh, and he also makes the coffee. <laughs> I love it. We invite him to come out and visit us, and he says, well, I'm too busy. You know, he, he's doing his thing, and I love it. It's good to see. You never outgrow, as it were. You never age out of service for the Lord. Anna's one of those who understands that. She's in the right place at the right time because she spends so much time there. She stays where can be, she can be connected to the purposes of God, and it gives her the opportunity to meet the Christ child, gives her the opportunity to encourage the parents, and an opportunity from which she sees and understands and continues to speak of this child in what he has come to do. The Christmas story is a beautiful <laughs> recounting of the events of Jesus coming to Bethlehem. It encourages us, it inspires us, but to fully understand all that God was doing and how that circumstance was serving God's purposes, we need to lift our eyes beyond the manger, and we need to see the rest of the story. What it'll do is it'll put us ourselves at the right place at the right time, when we come to recognize and understand what is in this for us that perhaps we haven't seen before. And we'll recognize the fact that what God's desire for us is that we too would experience our own divine encounter. That we too would develop a compelling faith. That's what Christmas can do. It's not just something that we come into and we celebrate the beauty, and we celebrate the love. Those are important. We should celebrate the familiar, but we must not leave it there because God is desiring to transform us through His Spirit in this season by understanding all of what happened after the manger, not just for Jesus, not just in the first century, but for our hearts as well happens when we come to understand the rest of the story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Simeon, for Anna, for your plan that went beyond Bethlehem, that went beyond a manger. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would, would recognize there's so much more there it's not just a time to come and sing songs and to celebrate. It's a time to be challenged, to be encouraged, to step out in faith, to recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit at work, not just in Simeon, but His desire to work in us. So Lord, may we not be willing and able to just let it rest, and to set it aside, 
but to engage and to enter in, to celebrate your plan from before all time, to bring salvation to the Israelites, yes, to the Gentiles, absolutely, to us, no doubt about it. So Lord, for any of us who are here, who have yet to give our hearts, our minds, our lives over to you, may we in this moment put our commitment in you, put our trust and our faith in you, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.